If you turn in your Bibles at this time to the book of Genesis, our scripture reading will come from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. (coughs) We are taking a, a very brief respite for a couple of weeks out of the book of 2 Corinthians, which we have been covering for a number of months. We're taking a brief respite to address an issue that is very much a part of our culture very much a part of our society, very much a part of our world, very, very relevant. And that issue is in regards to marriage, the scriptures, and the subject of homosexuality. We look in Genesis chapter 1, at the very first book of the Bible, God's intention for marriage. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. The text reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We turn to Genesis chapter 2. We read there in verse 24. Beginning in verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's bow together in prayer as we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks. For your word, which is the basis of truth. We pray, O Father, that we have not been left to our own thoughts. But, Father, it is your divine revelation that has given us moorings and anchor by which we might be able to anchor our soul in the truth found in your word. We pray, O Father, that as we address this issue, Father, we would see your desire... For all of creation, for we desire, O Father, to understand and know your mind, open our eyes, O God, that we may see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, we'll be addressing a issue, this issue of homosexuality, marriage, and the Bible. And this week, this week will be part one, next week will be part two. As I looked at all of the material that needed to be covered, it wouldn't be able to be covered today. A very serious issue regarding a subject that is sometimes not addressed in families, 
or in the church. If you've been watching the news, you'll be well aware of the recent issues surrounding this. Surrounding homosexual marriage it has been on the front page of the Times, political issues in Washington State. It has been brought to the forefront by our nation's leaders within the past couple of weeks. And it's not just a cultural or a societal issue, it's a biblical issue. And as such, today I'd like to begin with a very brief historical snapshot or a sampling of homosexuality's impact both nationally and internationally then address some key issues, give you a biblical portrait of marriage, and in the following week, look specifically at what the scriptures say about homosexuality and how that is sometimes twisted by proponents of homosexuality. And that is a lot to cover. And certainly someone will say that there is much that has been left out and they will find fault to it. But the purpose, the purpose is to give you a bird's eye view, to give you an overview, a macroscopic sampling of the issues as our time, our brief time permits. And so I'd like to give you first a brief sampling of homosexuality's impact as we think and we prime our perspective so that we can see what God's perspective is later on. Homosexuality is not something that is new. It is not something that is recent. In fact, it is addressed in the Bible. It extends all the way back to the book of Genesis. We see one prominent event in Abraham's nephew whose name was Lot and he lived in a city called Sodom. In Genesis 19, many are familiar with the story of those two cities and their perversion and how God destroyed them. But not only is it addressed in the book of Genesis, it's addressed time and time again in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Judges, chapter 19, in Romans, chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, 1 Timothy, etc. And by the time we come from the Old Testament to the New Testament, when Paul has been writing about... Oh, 50 A.D. or so, the book of Corinthians, it was a part of the Greek and Roman culture. It was said that Socrates and Plato were homosexuals, as well as 14 of the first 15 Roman governors. And in Plato's symposium, as well as Xenophon's memorabilia, it was not only allowed, but considered noble. Throughout history, homosexuality has occurred in various cultures, various peoples, not just America and not just in recent decades. And just as the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years, so too, and mentions it a number of times, so too, we should not be surprised that this is an ongoing issue ever since sin infected the earth and the race of mankind. So we fast forward then knowing that it has been an issue, a subject throughout history to modern day times. There has been an intentional wave of change in the past number of decades in our culture and in our world that seemingly continues to spiral downwards faster and faster as proponents of homosexuality and activists have impacted our culture in various ways, both domestically and internationally as noted by Professor Michael Grisanti of the Master Seminary. And he paints a very broad 
sampling of how they have affected our culture. And it's important for us to understand some of these things that have come about. One way in the, in the way that they have impacted our culture is by the change in the use of vocabulary. The terms that are used, one being very prominent, and that is the term homophobia. The concise Oxford English Dictionary defines it as an intense aversion to homosexuality and homosexuals. The term, however, has been used by different people in different contexts in a much broader sense to characterize those who would merely disagree or have different convictions. And when they do, it's often used as a slapdown. A slapdown in a very negative way, having a gagging effect, such as if you were to call somebody a, a racist or a sexist or a cultist or a legalist or whatever it may be. The type of name calling it has been used that has been connoting a prejudicial and has very negative connotations and people often will clam up because nobody wants to be called names. People who are involved with the issues of homosexuality, such as in counseling, public office, they're often in the crosshairs, can easily be the target of the term homophobe that explodes like a dye pack and a pack of cash. Those who are proponents of homosexuality easily label other individuals. The twisting of terms, the twisting of vocabulary, casting others in a negative light is one of the changes that has occurred. For instance, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, GLAD, calls the state of Indiana's efforts to institute a strict anti-gay marriage law as an anti-marriage equality movement. Not only have we seen the change in vocabulary, but there's been change in counseling as well. Secular counseling changes. Benedict Carey of the New York Times in an article entitled Psychiatrist's Journey to Apology on Gay Quote-Unquote Cure, which just was written last Friday, two days ago, found on MSNBC.com. He writes, in the late 1990s, as today, the psychiatric establishment considered the therapy to be a non-starter. Few therapists thought of homosexuality as a disorder. It wasn't always so. Up into the 1970s, the field's diagnostic manual classified homosexuality as an illness, calling it a sociopathic personality disturbance, unquote. Many therapists offered treatment, including Freudian analysis, who dominated the field at that time. In other words, secular therapists used to see it as aberrant or abnormal and it could be counseled and people could be helped through counseling. But today, that's unacceptable. In fact, one leading, one leading counselor who had written a study submitted an apology last week for the quote-unquote harm that he had done by suggesting that change could occur. There have been legislative changes, many, that have been chronicled. Inroads have been made politically and legislatively. Some of the big ones include in 2007, Governor Schwarzenegger, who signed SB 777 into law, prohibiting public school teachers from giving any instruction that same-sex marriages or a homosexual lifestyle are wrong. And instruction that supports marriage between a man and a woman 
as the only legitimate or best arrangement for a family or for the raising of children could be considered illegal or discriminatory unless, of course, it is in a private religious school or in a homeschool context. <clears throat> in other words, if you are a public school teacher and you say, well, it's best if you have parents who are a male and a female who live in a monogamous, homo-heterosexual relationship, a marriage between a man and a woman is best for the family, you very well be breaking the law and discrimination. The current debate over gay marriage became legal in Massachusetts, as you very well know. They became the first state to grant marriage licenses to same-sex couples in 2004. Licenses are granted by six states, Connecticut, Iowa, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New York and Vermont, plus Washington, D.C. And Oregon's Coquille and Washington State's Suquamish Indian tribes. It's interesting, by the way, to note that legislation or legalization has been achieved through court rulings and legislative actions, but not through voter referendums. These examples are merely a sample, a sample of the governmental changes and inroads that have occurred. And there's changing tides, not just in terminology, not just in counseling, not just in the government, but also in the church. When the emerging church movement was spawned, which was a postmodern philosophical approach that propagates the idea of uncertainty when it comes to things that the scriptures would teach, when the emerging church movement swept in, it clouded the issue. It attacked the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture or the clarity of scripture, and dogmatic assertions were viewed as prideful. One of the key Movers and leaders of the movement, his name is Brian McLaren, who wrote in Christianity Today, quote, Frankly, many of us don't know what we should think about homosexuality. We've heard all sides, but no position has yet won our confidence so that we can say it seems good to the Holy Spirit and us. That alienates us from both the liberals and conservatives who seem to know exactly what we should think. If we think that there may actually be a legitimate context for some homosexual relationships, we know that the biblical arguments are nuanced and multi-layered. And the pastoral ramifications are staggeringly complex. We aren't sure if or where the lines are to be drawn. Nor do we know how to enforce with fairness whatever lines are drawn, unquote. In other words, you really don't know. Churches have been swept up in that. It's all unclear. But that came after, interestingly enough, many moderate and liberal Protestant churches, which are either the open to ordaining gay and lesbian clergy or in the process of discussing it. The Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, ELCA, in 2009. The ELC in Canada in 2011. The Episcopal Church and the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, PCUSA, not the PCA, not to be confused with them, have approved rules to ordain openly gay or lesbian clergy. So there have been inroads, not only in our vocabulary, not only in counseling, not only in government, not only in the church, but also internationally. 
International inroads. Canada's bill, C-250, May 2004, declares homophobia, remember the term that I spoke of a little while ago, as illegal and, quote, passages of the Bible condemning homosexuality in Leviticus and Romans have been declared akin to hate literature by a judge in Saskatchewan. Ake Green, who is a Pentecostal Christian pastor, was sentenced to one month in prison under Sweden's law against hate speech. Though it was overturned, he was acquitted again in 2005 by the Supreme Court of Sweden. It simply exemplifies that the issue is not just an issue here in the U.S. In fact, in an article entitled Cultural and Medical Myths About Homosexuality, the author notes, quote, Leaders in the European Union, February 2006, have passed a resolution stating that homophobia is a social evil and an irrational fear of homosexuals. The Homophobia in Europe resolution compares homophobia to racism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism, and sexism, and calls for its criminalization. The leader of this effort is Franco Fertini, the Justice Minister of the EU. He stated, quote, Homophobia is a violation of human rights and we are watching member states on this issue and reporting on cases in which our efforts have been unsuccessful. The resolution warns that any refusal to grant homosexuals same-sex marriage status will be considered a crime of homophobia. So, it has been advanced domestically, internationally, it has been advanced in schools, in churches, in local governments, in public policy, both domestically and internationally. And that is not to mention that I've already skipped and not to mention all the movies, the talk shows, the TV programs that promote, support, advocate. Homosexuality is an acceptable lifestyle and a tsunami of cultural change that is not for the glory of God has come upon our world. So why should we be concerned? Well, because it's not merely a social or a social issue. It's not some issue where you say, well, that's just them. Let them do what they want. It won't affect me. As we already seen, it affects the church. And the mentality is spilled over into the church and affected Bible commentators, pastors, denominations, and congregations. And I'll mention some of those as examples next week when we look at specific passages and how even commentators have come to a wrong conclusion, not applying biblical principles of interpretation, not applying standard hermeneutical principles when it comes to interpreting Scripture. Irv Busnitz, who's a professor at the Master's Seminary, writes in Marriage and Homosexuality Toward a Biblical Understanding, notes a pastor who writes, quote, that Jeffrey Dennis, in his article, Liberating Gay Theology, states that gays and lesbians do not need counseling or healing or understanding. So, Dennis writes, the scriptures need to be redefined, he says. According to social norms, 
He contends gays and lesbians are here to transform the church. We need a gay God, he says. A gay who, who, a God who would lead us toward a more affirming, harmonious, creative, socially conscious and spiritually profound life. We need a gay spirit. A spirit who would retain the particularity of individuals in the global village not to be reviled but to be cherished. The spirit's goal would not be unity but a unity in diversity. Not the wedding feast of the Lamb, but the festival of Cain and Abel, the archetypal brothers bringing their first fruits together to God. That is part of the agenda. This wasn't some back room publisher that published this liberal pastor's writing. It's published by University Press. What is the homosexual agenda? What are their basic beliefs? Rick Holland, who's a professor also in the Master's Seminary, notes that over 20 years ago, Randy Alcorn wrote in his book, Christians in the Wake of a Sexual Revolution, summarized the movement's basic beliefs. The tenets are the same and they're gaining in acceptance and popularity and public opinion. Number one, they want to propagate that homosexuality is an inborn nature, not an illness, not a choice, and not subject to change by any act of the will, psychological therapy, or religious experience. It is an inborn thing. Homosexuality, secondly, is as natural as heterosexuality. It just happens to occur less frequently. It is not an undesirable condition except for its social stigma, which is the result of misguided or hateful homophobics. Thirdly, part of their agenda is that it constitutes a legitimate minority as blacks or Chicanos. Homosexual rights are just as valid as women's rights. Fourthly, homosexuals have made essential contributions to the development of Western culture. Literature is often filled with famous artists or musicians, poets, and statesmen. Fifthly, that homosexuals should openly acknowledge their condition, come out of the closet and live their desired lifestyle. They should be proud, not ashamed to pursue homosexual relationships, unquote. And these ideas, as we see, are antithetical and contrary to the Word of God. But the drumbeat continues as a significant number of homosexuals even profess to be evangelical Christians. They coined a term, evangelical homosexuals. Just as others would say that they are legitimate. They want to propagate the idea that God accepts their lifestyle. In fact, created them that way. Proponents have sought to redefine marriage as part of their agenda. From what is taught in public schools to promotion through legal channels. Irv Busnitz, as I mentioned as well, writes, he's a professor at TMS. In certain strongholds of liberal and antinomian thought, kindergarten and first grade teachers are carefully instructed that a family is a, quote, unit of two or more persons related either by birth or by choice, who may or may not live together, who try to meet each other's needs and share common goals and interests. 
In 97, then-President Bill Clinton, speaking at a hate crimes conference at George Washington University, exhorted schools across America to design and institute pro-homosexual diversity programs to teach, quote, to teach children a different way. George Dent, writing in the Journal of Law and Politics, says that once same-sex marriage is affirmed, then other forms of marriage will quickly be affirmed as well, such as polygamy. Endogamy, which is the marriage between blood relatives and child marriage. In fact, the policy guide of the ACLU calls for the legalization of polygamy, stating the ACLU believes that criminal and civil laws prohibiting or penalizing the practice of plural marriage violate constitutional protections for freedom of expression, association, freedom of religion, and privacy for personal relationships among consenting adults. And it becomes very, very antagonistic with the agenda that is the desired agenda. Michael Kinsley writes in the Washington Post, the solution is to end the institution of government monopoly on marriage. And yes, if three people want to get married, let them. If you and your government are implicated, what do you care, unquote? And that's some, not all, I'm sure it's not all, but that's some in the movement who would have that desire that no one would care. No one would care about anything and allow people to do what they want. Marry one, marry two, marry more, marry men, marry women, marry children, close relatives, animals. It doesn't matter what sort of perversion. That is the sentiment that they hope would be pervasive. They would just be permitted to do whatever they want and to also teach not only that to their own Children, but to teach yours in the public realm as well. And that anyone who would say that that is wrong, it's none of their business. You would be a bigoted homophobe and could someday be charged with a hate crime, both here or in the world. Redefining marriage is a part of the agenda. So it's been obvious to us in various realms when you look at it, it doesn't take very much time to study the subject that their influence and their agenda has been propagated in many realms in our society as well as in the world. And this seismic shift has caused a ripple effect that has touched churches, that has touched individuals, has influenced denominations and has caused masses, as particularly the younger generation, which has been much more accepting of of an unbiblical mindset when it comes to these issues. But the scriptures repeatedly tell us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So no matter what is being propagated, we raise that up, compare it to the Word of God and ask ourselves, is this what God says? What do the Scriptures say? How do, how do these things stand up? Not does it make, you know, logical, rational sense. Because why? As Isaiah 55 says, God's ways are higher than our ways. And His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. How could we ever think that what seems rational or reasonable to the masses of people would be the right thing? We need a standard that is outside of ourselves by which to judge right from wrong, truth from error. 
And so we look at what is the biblical portrait of marriage. What is the biblical portrait of marriage? And it's essential to understand that. How God defines marriage. Because any other definition, any other purpose of marriage based upon whether it is societal norms, based upon whether it is cultural acceptance, based upon some legal definition, is doomed to sway. As the culture morphs and changes, so too do definitions. So do definitions. And those are doomed to moral and social failure. Arguing only on the basis of cultural tradition or only on the basis of potential consequences, as, as important as those are in propagating an argument or supporting an argument, as important as those are, they'll never compare to the clear definition of what the scriptures would say is God's portrait, God's purpose for marriage. His divine and enduring word which never changes So, as we read in our text today in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them. He created man in his own image. In verse 27, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth very clear here. One of the purposes by which God desires for those who are married is that of procreation. A portrait of marriage is given in the opening passages here in Genesis. The creative act happened before the fall, by the way. When sin polluted all of creation, provides for us a divine perspective, God said, be fruitful and multiply. It was for Adam and Eve as a generality for the population of the earth to be fruitful and multiply, to procreate. That's not the only purpose of marriage, but certainly that was a part of God's design and purpose. Not just for people as well. When you, when you turn in, in the Bible, you come to the, uh, the, the subject of the flood in Genesis chapter 7. You ever notice in Genesis chapter 7, what did God say to Noah? He said, you'll take every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female. Again, in verse 2 and 7, male and his female. In verse 3 of chapter 7, male and female. Why? To keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So that's what Noah did. God's intention for people as well as for uh, the animal kingdom was to procreate. This is not the only purpose as I mentioned. But people who are in a homosexual relationship cannot fulfill God's purpose and plan. Secondly, God's purpose and plan was that it be heterosexual and monogamous. Heterosexual and monogamous. God's portrait of marriage is that it would be, as we observe from the book of Genesis, one man and one woman. He did not create another man for Adam. He did not create a group of people. He did not make a child. He did, for Adam, create a woman. One man for one woman. And after the fall, man perverted God's purposes through polygamy, through bigamy, through concubines, through divorce, 
through homosexuality, through fornication, all sorts of immorality. But since creation, it has always been one man for one woman. The idea of a one woman man is also held up as a standard in the book of First Timothy, in the book of Titus. Because one of the qualifications of a pastor, one of the qualifications of an elder within the church is that they be a one woman man. Some translations will say it, the husband of one wife. It doesn't say the husband of one partner. It doesn't say the husband of one person. It doesn't say that the husband who is fully committed to someone else. It says the husband of one wife. Furthermore, God's will is seen in the Ten Commandments. You ever realize what the Fifth Commandment is? Honor your father and mother. It doesn't say honor your two mothers. Honor your parents. God's command is that everyone show honor to their father specifically and mother specifically. And the Chorus has implications in the area of whether or not homosexuals should be allowed to adopt children. Thirdly, not only is it God's plan and purpose and intention for procreation, heterosexual and monogamous relationships, but thirdly, it is an analogy to Christ and the church. An analogy to Christ and the church. God's portrait of marriage given in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. There we see in verse 25 in the book of Ephesians... It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, then a quotation from the book of Genesis. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. There is an analogy that is given here. And that analogy is between Christ and his church. There's a reference once again to father and mother, to wife and husband. The Christ, Christ is not marrying himself. The church is not marrying herself. The biblical portrait of marriage once again is between one man and one woman, analogous to Christ and the church. So, we see same-sex marriage is not a part of God's design for marriage, nor has it ever been. Even before the fall, Rick Holland writes, quote, After surveying of the church's traditional position on homosexuality, from the church fathers to the modern church, Richard Lovelace concludes, quote, Until recently, the public posture of all sectors of the church towards homosexuality, even including liberal Protestantism, has rarely diverged from the traditional negative stance. 
Homosexuals have been, at least theoretically, welcomed in the church if they're repentant and sexually inactive. But active homosexuality has either been regarded as sin or, at the least, as a contagious illness, unquote. You see, it's important to understand for us the times in which we live. We live in a country, we live in a culture whose moral moorings have been rapidly devolving. What was once unacceptable, especially those who have lived longer, what was once unthinkable just 50 years ago, whether it be cohabitation, whether it be pornography or fornication or homosexuality, has become debatable. And today is now more normative than ever. From public policy to education, the sinfulness of our society has continued to erode. And I want to encourage you to be a person of prayer who would cause our own selves to be sensitive to the times in which we live, to love the Word of God and to be the one who will carry the truth of His Word to your own children, to your own family, and to be a person who takes a stand for righteousness in whatever venue God has called you to. Because you see, as we've seen in a brief sampling of how it has impacted our world, we see the biblical portrait of marriage. We see that it is all, all too important for us to have an understanding of our times. And next week we'll look specifically at Romans 1, Specifically, it's how to answer some of the objections that people may have, the appropriate responses. Just as in Sunday school we saw today and we learned about the new atheism, not to be caught up in yelling back at the other side, to be, but be able to give an answer with gentleness and respect of the hope that lies within us. And so as we do, we pray that God would be gracious to help us to understand this in the light of Scripture. Let's bow together in a word of prayer, asking for His blessing. Our Father, we understand and know that the times in which we live are challenging times. And Father, it has been a brief time. We know, Father, that Your intention has been made clear in Your Word. And yet, Father, many have been deceived by the rationale, whether it be from philosophers or scientists or those who are in the healthcare profession or the counseling profession, that such things, such as your word, are outdated or passe. We pray, God, may you help us to know and understand your desires for our families for ourselves and for those that we know who have been caught up in the sin. In Jesus' name, amen.